This is the Fox Sports South College Countdown. Intercepted. Wow, he got crushed. It's blocked and it's going to be a touchdown. Final five to the end zone. 20, 10, touchdown. Here's Wes Durham and Corey McCartney. Can you smell what John Swafford is cooking? It's the biggest ACC championship game yet. That's what the commissioner is cooking. Welcome into College Countdown, presented by North Myrtle Beach. Corey McCartney joined by Wes Durham as we dive into number one Clemson versus number seven Miami with a spot in the college football playoff almost assuredly going to the winner. Wes, good day to you. Corey, great to be with you. It's hard to believe it's gone this fast, huh? Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's sometimes the, the seasons feel like they're in a lull, and the next thing you know, they're they're just about over with. And I mentioned that title game, and we'll discuss that. We're going to scratch the surface on the Jimbo Fisher to Texas A and M talk. Plus, be joined by singer songwriter Walker Hayes, who makes his championship game weekend predictions. So let's dive right into this Clemson and Miami West. Are we in agreement that the Hurricanes win, and regardless, the ACC is making a return to the playoff? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think the winner is definitely in. Uh, the question I have, and, and as it relates to the ACC, if Miami wins, based on some of the other things, does Clemson stay in? I think there's a real argument for the Tigers, and their eight wins, I think it is, against the top 50 now, to uh, to maybe even hang on and uh, and maybe even get two ACC teams in. And wouldn't that cause a tremendous amount of teeth gnashing. Yeah, that, I mean, because basically everyone's painting the picture that if there's chaos, Alabama is the team that's sitting there with the opportunity to, to, to take advantage of it. And you're right. I mean, I think Clemson has a resume that you have to start questioning. If they get beat, could they be the one that gets in there? Can you paint a picture where the ACC gets shut out? I mean, should the Hurricanes win and the, and the rest of the top four stays intact with Auburn, Oklahoma, Wisconsin winning or even Georgia and Ohio State winning? It, it's difficult to create a scenario where the ACC doesn't get at least one of those four spots. I would agree with that. I, I think that there's no possible – well, I, I wouldn't say there's any possible way. I think it would be difficult to shut them out uh, because Miami would have one loss, albeit late in the season. I still think it's one of those games where – uh, the winner of the game is going to get in, much like the SEC. I don't see any way that a one-loss Georgia team uh, wins the game and doesn't get in either. So, yeah, I think the winner of the two ACC-SEC games, those guys are in for sure. Yeah, basically everyone wants to look for that argument that gets Alabama into the door. And, you know, I mean, if Wisconsin and Oklahoma lose, I mean, having that 13th data point railing against them, I think it's got to be awfully hard. Uh, for the Crimson Tide to get in. So th- the conference at ACC has waited for Miami to reach this point since it joined the league in 04 and really couldn't have asked for a better situation. As we mentioned, a playoff spot on the line. Mark Richt coming in as the conference coach of the year, the swagger being rekindled with the U. Then you've got the defending national champion in Clemson moving back to the number one spot just ahead of the game. Think back to the 2007 ACC title game in Jacksonville. Overhead shots showing that nearly empty Jacksonville Municipal Stadium and announced crowd of 53,000, but I think we clearly knew that wasn't the case. And, you know, forgive the Florida State pun here, but a seminal moment, it seems like, for a conference that's already won two of the last four national titles. Yeah, and that's one of the things that, uh, you know, Miami being in this game just makes it feel right. And it took a long time to obviously happen. But you get Clemson, who is... uh, you know, if there's such a thing as a dynasty in today's college football, Clemson has rebounded fully, winning the title last year, playing for the title the year before. They've done all the things that have happened, you know, across the board to, to you know, 
verify or validate their program. So this game has all the trappings of something you would expect to see maybe years ago, and now we finally get there for sure. Speaking of dynasties in ACC, and in the Atlantic Division, certainly Florida State and Clemson have shared the spotlight for a long time. And before we dive into the Word Association and this Clemson-Miami matchup, get into the talk a little bit here about Jimbo Fisher potentially jumping from Florida State to Texas A&M. One of four active coaches with a national title. I mean, just one bad season just happens to be this one. Uh, This sort of feels, I think, to a lot of people like a lateral move, but everything we're hearing from the long gestating talks of facility improvements uh, to a potential pay increase, the outside influence of Dan Mullen landing in Florida. A lot more smoke than fire, at least it seems like it was a year ago with the LSU rumors. Yeah, there's there are a lot of things that go into today's college football coaching. Uh, you know, leverage is one, okay? Um, the thing that that only concerns me about this is, and I've always kind of stood by the philosophy that when a coach has a bad season, and ultimately it comes to making personnel changes, Corey, sometimes those personnel changes or coaching changes, if you will, on his staff are very personal. Um, and I'm also one of these guys that, that's quick to tell folks that the first thing that will get a coach in trouble is loyalty, okay? And loyalty being hardcore loyalty to certain people. And if Jimbo Fisher is being told to make coaching changes – by people involved at Florida State, I'm not sure that you tell Jimbo Fisher to do that. I think that's a hard thing for for somebody like that to understand, okay? Because he's done so much right, if that makes sense, in the last, what, eight years, I guess, as their head coach. Um, Here's here's the thing I would offer you. Jimbo Fisher may want to make a move simply because he doesn't want to be engaged in, in telling friends goodbye, you know? That sounds crazy, but sometimes that happens. I mean, I've, I've seen it happen three other times in college football where a coach took another job simply because he didn't want to fire a friend. And I'm not sure Jimbo Fisher is in that particular situation. I'm not sure he's going to make changes if he takes the job or stays at Florida State. But the reality of it is it's probably very difficult for him after eight years to understand why all of a sudden one bad year – and you got to get rid of people that have been incredibly loyal to you. Yeah, talk he could get a $2 million a year pay increase, up to $7.5 million. Uh, reports yeah. are that Florida State's already setting itself up for a potential dispar- uh, departure, doing the legwork on Oregon's Willie Taggart, yeah. who obviously was yeah. formerly at UCF. It, I mean, it seems like a lot more of a distinct possibility than it did a year ago uh, with mm-hmm. the LSU stuff. And, and really, I mean, you think about this, this would be a big blow, not just to, to Florida State, but the ACC, which has really put together a very impressive stable of coaches. I mean, of course, he and Florida State do have a game to play on Saturday against Louisiana Monroe. And, I mean, who would have ever expected a game against a Sun Belt opponent uh, could ultimately be uh, Jimbo Fisher's send-off? Yeah, I think that that's the, I think that's the one thing that keeps coming back into play here is how all this kind of fits, if you will. Um, they win the game. They're bowl eligible. All of a sudden, let's say a day or two later, he's introduced in College Station as the head coach. Um, you know, what's the rollout from the ACC? We, you know, you and I offline had a conversation about the possibility of, what, two, maybe three coaches going out of this league this year because that is the one marker that this league has helped itself immensely with is coaching hires. And so let's keep an eye on this. Um, there are a lot of things in play in the Jimbo Fisher situation that I think are very different than other names being mentioned for other jobs. Um you know, and I was quite frankly surprised to see Mississippi State move fast on Joe Moorhead. Um, 
I thought that might be a longer drawn out process. Arkansas is still out there. Obviously, Tennessee, we've we've seen that's been well documented. So, um, you know, Jimbo Fisher to A and M. By the time we visit next week, could be a done deal. Uh, we could find out he's staying. That's that's the best part of the of the drama, so to speak. I guess if he does leave, and you hate to put the, an emphasis on any coach being able to to really keep a program uh, you know relevant in college football in 2017, especially one that has the you know the backing and the in the, the lineage of Florida State, is Florida State potentially in trouble though? When you look at what else is happening in the state of Florida, you know, with Miami in the upswing, with Florida getting a little bit stronger, uh, you know, with Dan Mullen, could this program be in a, a tedious spot? if uh, Jimbo Fisher leaves? I wouldn't think so, but I'm not going to rule it out because you're right. There is this dynamic of what's happened at Miami, what certainly can transpire now in Gainesville with Dan Mullen being there. And the one thing that's going to help Dan Mullen is he's got an unbelievable working knowledge of how things go in that state. You know, Um, He is a guy who understands Gainesville. He understands UF. He understands that – the, the landscape of the politics, okay? And that's a that's a pretty big thing to have command of when you take a job because, as you know, Corey, talking to coaches, it takes a year or two for somebody to figure out the way a school works. Well, he knows how this school works. And, oh, by the way, he's got the benefit of the athletic director that he's already had the relationship with. This is not some midnight romance that sometimes goes together in these searches either, you know? That's something that's fascinating here. So, I think Dan Mullen was a perfect choice at Florida. I think it's also pretty clean how they got it done, and as fast as they got it done, especially off the Thursday night loss in the Egg Bowl. That being said, as it relates to Jimbo Fisher, Florida State is still Florida State. They won the last national championship in that state now, okay? That's something that they can work with until somebody knocks them off. He's got a lot of things done, but are they there in terms of competing with Alabama in resources? competing with Texas A&M and resources or other schools that they're like? No. And that's the issue here. A&M has all the resources. A&M has a lot of money. A&M has a lot of land. That's the thing Florida State has to combat here. I don't think this is a salary move for Jimbo Fisher. I think it's a move about resources. It's a move about success. But the success is going to be peril because Look at what division he'll jump into if he goes to Texas A&M. It's uh, it's so telling that what really drives college footballs, uh, you know, what we want to talk about when we've got championship weekend coming up, we've got you know reshuffled college football playoff rankings, and here we are. Everyone wants to talk about coaching changes. I mean, this is uh, this is the fodder that keeps everything going for college football fans, without question. So again, Florida State, though, while that's uh, definitely relevant. Clemson and Miami are at the forefront of the ACC this weekend meeting in the conference championship game in Charlotte. So I want to play a little word association with you with some different matchups in this game. So let's start off with Clemson's offense going against Miami's defense. Well, I think the Tigers offensively are okay. I I don't think they're great. I don't think they're nearly what they were a year ago in terms of just the, you know, the way everything sets up. But uh, look, Clemson's been far more efficient offensively here recently than they have been maybe in some of their struggles. But Miami's defense is a turnover machine. You know that. I mean, that's one of the things that's kind of become the sidebar to their season is their ability to create turnovers. I I think it'll be incumbent upon them to do that Saturday night if they're going to have a chance to pull the upset because I think the other side of the ball is the real issue here for Miami in the game. But Clemson just needs to go be Clemson. It's funny. We started this whole thing talking about quarterbacks that just needed to play above average, yep, right? Yep. Well, guess what? That's all 
Kelly Bryant needs to do Saturday night is just go be above average and manage the game and don't make unforced errors to uh, to put your team behind the eight ball. So just be above average. That's your word association for Clemson's offense against Miami's defense. <laughs> I'm going with I'm going with security risk here, and we you, you mentioned it. I mean, Miami leads the nation in turnover margin. No Power Five team has gained more than their 29. Holding on to the ball though has been an issue for the Tigers away from Death Valley. They've committed three turnovers in five road games, including two against South Carolina. I, given the benefit of the doubt here for the Tigers, though, considering the way they dominated the Gamecocks, but it's still concerning from the fact that Miami, an average of three turnovers in their last six games, the one time that they did not hit that mark, of course, when they lost last week to Pitt. Uh, Clemson's defense against Miami's offense. Well, this is, this is where the game is solved, in my, in my opinion. Uh, Clemson's defense is suffocating, and that's my word association. Clemson has suffocated teams defensively this year, and it's interesting. Their base package features anywhere from four to seven first-round picks, depending on who you talk to. But I talked to a uh, I talked to an assistant this week who told me that he thinks their sub packages are as impressive as their base packages. Hmm. And I told him, I said, "Give me a little more behind that," and he said. Watch how they affect themselves in dime nickel when they go from zone to man. When they elect to play man, when they elect to play zone, he goes, everybody in those spots plays with great confidence. He goes, not everybody in college football has that kind of innate ability. And that's one of the things that I think is fascinating about Clemson. So suffocating is my word. I think that's what they'll do. I think they'll suffocate Miami. Uh, You're asking Miami offensively to play at a very, very high level. There can't be the errant throw, almost interception for Malik Rozier. There cannot be the, you know, guy slipping down on a route on a third down type thing. You've got to play as clean and as perfect as possible for Miami to have a chance to win, I think. I'm agreeing with you. I'm going with grass stains because no, only one Power 5 team, USC, uh, has more sacks than Clemson's 40. The Hurricanes have allowed 22 in the season. Malik Rozier, the recipient of 20 of those. He's also going to have no Christopher Herndon, who's out for the season, and it was alarming to me the way that Pitt shut down Travis Homer. And Clemson, 14th against the rush, I think they're, they're set up to have some similar success. I think that puts the pressure on Rozier to make some things happen. And being chased around by Christian Wilkins and company, I think you're, I mean, they're going to put him in a position to make some decisions that he's not 100% comfortable with. And I think you're right. I mean, that, that suffocating defense is going to be the, the big uh, difference maker in this game. So the coaching matchup, Dabo Sweeney versus Mark Richt. Ooh, word association? Um, classic, to be honest with you, because you're talking about a coach in, in Mark Rick that's won an SEC title, albeit the last one, 2005. Dabo Sweeney has been a guy who's had great success, won some ACC championships and a national championship, obviously. So classic would be the coaching matchup for me. I think this is one, you, you just mentioned it a moment ago, one of the one of the notes of the ACC's emergence as a football conference has been their coaching hires. and And this is a good example. This is a real good example of how all that's transpired. So I'd go classic here. Yeah, think about the and people talk about the heyday of the SEC. What was the what was the biggest factor in the heyday of the SEC? You can talk about all this great talent that they put uh, into the NFL. Eventually, it was the coaches. It was it was a room of alpha males, Les Miles, Nick Saban, Urban Meyer, on and on and on to the point where there, it was hard to find a real weak link in that conference in, the, in the, the coaching ranks. I think the ACC has found itself in that exact same spot now, which is why we're highlighting this matchup. And I'm going with, to be the man, you've got to beat the man. I'm dialing up some Ric Flair there. 
Mark Rick did a lot at Georgia. He won two outright SEC titles, won the or shared the East six times. What he never did, and Georgia fans know this all too well, was win a national title or even play for a national title when he was in Athens. To do that in year two at Miami, he's got to take down the ACC's version of the man right now, and that's Dabo Sweeney. The last one for us on this, turnover chain versus Tanoga Tuesday. Tanoga Tuesday is take away, no giveaway Tuesday, which is part of uh, you know Clemson's weekday uh, themed events that they do. Right. I'd go turnover chain only because we premiered the turnover chain in week one with our game down there. I think you know you you need to get credit for that. You I mean it was like you 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 got you know the uh, it was the Colonel was with Elvis. Colonel Tom yeah, 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 yeah. You and James Bates were the, the colonel ushering college football's version of Elvis in 2017, the turnover chain into the lexicon. So, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. My, yeah, I appreciate that very much. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to get you a nice bolo tie to wear <laughs> next time. So my word association on this one is every time I come around your city, bling, bling, because I, I don't like the – Mental Monday, Tanoga Tuesday, Working Man Wednesday, Team Thursday, Focus Friday, Successful Saturday. I know it works for for the vibe that Dabo Sweeney has, but I and I, I like the idea that Brent Venables is high fiving guys when they first turnovers on Tuesdays. But it's you're talking about the hottest accessory in college football. I mean, J Lo is wearing this thing. Alex Rodriguez is is wearing this thing. I'm pretty sure Alex Rodriguez does not want to walk around the J Lo household on Tuesdays and hit things out of people's hands, but he wants to wear a turnover chain <laughs> when he's sitting at a Miami game. By the way, oh, this is our Pantone game of the week, a, a fitting game uh, considering oh, the, both, both the Tigers and Hurricanes rock versions of orange. Clemson's orange, for those with the color wheel, is 1595. Miami's is 1665. An interesting tidbit here. The Hurricanes orange is the same as the Chicago Bears orange. What? Yeah. Uh, they they have the same Pantone. Clemson's, is it's the same hue as both the Oompa Loompa from Willy Wonka and Donald Trump's skin. So just some uh, trivia there to keep in your back pocket. So pretty. Uh, it's I didn't realize that last part. That yeah, well, you know. That people do. People, you can look up Donald Trump's skin color, and people have like the variations with the different, uh, you know, potentially, uh, you know, rubbins, uh, tanning stuff, and people have like the different skin colors on it. So, it's oh. uh, all right. Before we go, give me your projections on the, who makes the college football playoff. Oh, geez. Um, well, I think Wisconsin's going to find a way. Uh, I just think Wisconsin, you know, they're they're too good a story. And by the way, their defense is getting incredibly underrated in this whole process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, uh, and I like Paul Chris. I really like the way he goes about his business, to be honest, too. So I, I appreciate that. So I'm going to keep Wisconsin in the mix. Uh, I think Oklahoma gets there. I think they'll beat TCU in the uh, de facto Big 12 made-up-for-money championship game. <laughs> And believe it or not, I, I think Auburn and Clemson will win. I, I I know chalk is boring at this time of year, but I honestly believe that's what happens. I, I do believe that the four teams at the top are the four teams playing the best right now in college football. And you give the committee credit for recognizing all this. You know, give these. I mean, we are so quick as media and analysts and fans to to get on the committee and say, wait a second. How in the world do you put such and such at 11 or such and such at 14 or 7 or whatever the case is? Hey, look, their job's to create the four, okay? And they've got the four in there. Auburn, despite two losses, and I'm the guy that said two losses were out. You were automatically out with two. Give Auburn credit for bucking it and finding ways to post convincing victories, first over Georgia 
and then over Alabama. And now, give them credit. Let Auburn and Clemson and Oklahoma and Wisconsin. I just think those four teams win, and and this thing is a layup as opposed to a last-second runner from midcourt by the committee on Sunday. I agree with you on Clemson and Oklahoma. I, I think I think Georgia's going to get the win because I think Cameron, uh, Cameron Petaway being out, on Johnson, I don't think he's going to be 100%. I don't know how effectively Auburn's going to run the football in that game. And then I'm taking Ohio State because I want to watch Kirby Hokett squirm when they have oh. him in the selection show on Sunday. And he has to basically say, look, a, a conference title is your ticket. And, and Alabama, I'm sorry, you don't have a conference championship. You didn't even make the conference championship game. Uh, I think that could be so compelling to see oh. just how fired up Nick Saban's going to be uh, in that regard. So I'm going to go that with the is a, That's a really good point, and that is the chaos aspect of this. And there could be platinum chaos or there could be moderate chaos. But understand, this is – and here's the thing, Corey, let me add this. The immediate reaction of people is going to be go four to eight. And that's the wrong reaction – because we're going to diminish what we've had for 13 weeks, which is really, really compelling college football this year. And that'd be, that's going to be a shame because a lot of people are going to start squawking that it needs to be eight, and it doesn't because they have accomplished one of the goals. And John Swafford said this this week. One of the goals was to maintain or enhance the competition of the regular season. And we've done that in college football. This, this thing has been 13 great weeks of football and and that's good for the sport. That's real good for the sport. Someone's getting into an eight-team playoff with three losses. If if if, if Auburn loses a tight one to Georgia in the SEC championship game, and we have an eight-team playoff, a three-team Auburn, a three-loss Auburn would be a team in that, and people would be irate. That, sure they you're, would. you're right. You're right. All right, it should be a good one Saturday night in Charlotte. And next week, Speak West, expect us to have an ACC versus the world theme show as the conference eyes that playoff matchup. So, <laughs> Colonel, Colonel, enjoy the weekend. Thanks. Thanks. I'm very <laughs> excited to, uh, to go to Tupelo and uh, Hattiesburg this week with the King. There you go. When Cobb's fo- uh, Countdown returns, I'll be joined by singer-songwriter Walker Hayes, who discusses his new album and makes his title game picks. <laughs> North Myrtle Beach, where a summer vacation is even better in the fall. Unexpected adventures, warm, uncrowded beaches, special memories. It's never too late for a stunning summer vacation. This fall, just coast. For travel deals, visit ExploreNorthMyrtleBeach.com. You were listening to College Countdown, presented by North Myrtle Beach. Corey McCartney with you as we head into the second quarter of our show, now joined by singer-songwriter Walker Hayes. Walker, man, good to hear from you. Corey, thanks for having me today, buddy. I appreciate you getting me on the show. Absolutely, man. Now, the, the new album, Boom, comes out on December 8th. You can pre-order it now. Give them a follow on Twitter at Walker Hayes or go to walkerhays.com for tour dates, swag, all that stuff. Now, first and foremost, you're an Alabama native from Mobile. A few years ago, you put the Alabama-Auburn rivalry to music with Iron Bowl, the rivalry. Uh, the, yeah. Crimson, the Crimson Tide, their undefeated season, possibly college football playoff spot, just fell to the Tigers. Are you still reeling from that one? Oh, yes, man. It's a... Uh... <laughs> that was a uh, emotional night for us. I was in Greenville, Alabama, watching it with the in-laws. And, uh, you know, I'm a Bama fan. And um, everybody knows, you know, if you grow up in Bama, you, you know what you are at a very, very early, early age, I guess, similar to the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry. But, yes, man, we're – I'm collecting my thoughts emotionally. I'm doing the math. I'm definitely going to be watching these games next week. Uh to you know, to figure out if 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 our name is in the hat for the vote, because uh, I definitely you know want a rematch. <laughs> well, they they still got a shot at this thing now. Now I understand 
you're going to be a father for the seventh time. So congratulations yes, on that. And I have to know, we're obviously heading into the holiday season. How does one handle gift buying with that many kids? Oh, my goodness. So, so honestly, the way we do it is one big one and lots, lots of like maybe two or three little ones apiece. So it's very strategic. Um, you know, no, it, it's tough. They start competing, you know, once you get big gifts for each of them. And so, you know, we'll do, we, we've done the trampoline thing one year, um, something like that. But honestly, my wife does all that shopping. I kind of just watch them open gifts and I'm like, ah, of course I got you that. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but yeah, man, my kids, they, they're so happy, uh, with a little bit and, um, you know how it is. Yeah. I know it's cliche to say, but kids love the dumbest toy they get on Christmas. You, you can never predict. It's kind of like college football. You can never predict what toy they're going to favor, and it's usually the one that you spent the least time stressing over uh, <laughs> whether they would like it or not. It's usually that, you know, the pencil that you got them in the cash, in, in the checkout line or something That's crazy. Right. So three boys and three girls, are, are, the, are, the, are the sides rooting one way or the other for this next one? Oh, yeah, yeah. They, uh, you know, I think, I think it's just it's typical. The girl, the girls want a girl, and the boys want a boy. But honestly, no one's no one's getting angry about it. You know, they all they were all just so excited to hear, you know, that that mom was pregnant again, that we're gonna have a new baby, and uh, they really were. They were just really all genuinely delighted. Uh, my 11 year old was even a little bit uh, emotional. She cried happy tears when, <laughs> when she found out. So it was a sweet moment. I mentioned boom coming out December 8th and this, the yeah. second, the second act for you has been so impressive. You broke up with me closing in on 26 million plays on Spotify. Beautiful was over 700,000. When you lost that Capitol records deal in 2012, could you have imagined this becoming possible? No, no, man, not at all. I honestly thought, um, just the way the odds work in Nashville, you know, I thought I had definitely gotten more chances than most already at the artist thing. And I, and I thought best case scenario, best case scenario, an, a, a large artist cuts one of my songs and maybe I, you know, maybe I can have a career in songwriting. Um, and so, yeah, the fact that, you know, I'm sitting here with a, a top 15 single this week um, that's selling, you know, is pretty unreal and i'm the artist singing it's pretty surreal to be driving around uh in my hometown of franklin now right south of nashville and to hear it you know on the radio on a on a daily basis that's pretty nice man that's so well, it's, congratulations man it's uh, it, man, it, it, it's you, you know it, you, there, there are songs you can't get out of your head i mean that's yeah. the thing and, and in a good way it's not like we're talking about like right. the macarena where you can't just like an earworm <laughs> you can't force it out but you know, yeah. it's yeah. The, you, you famously had the, the stint at, at Costco. How did how did that come about? Uh, I, I know you you laid it out there before, but it's just such an amazing yeah. story. Man, so you know, honestly, I w- it was one of the most humbling moments in my life. I, I met a guy at one of my own shows in Franklin, Tennessee. I was playing a seafood restaurant called Puckett's Boathouse, and a guy named Nick Kanger walks up to me, and he's just a humongous fan. And he starts talking about my music and, and stuff and how much he loves it. But he also mentioned he worked at the tire center in Costco. And, um, you know, I needed a job at the time. I wasn't able to, to pay the bills. And so I needed a second, a second job at the time. And, uh, you know, I was ashamed, but I asked him, you know, if they were hiring. He said, yes, they were. And within about a month, um, you know, I was going through orientation at Costco. And I actually uh, was assigned to the produce 
section. So from about 4 a.m. to 10, uh, 10.30 every day, I stocked produce in the cooler. And, uh, man, they were kind to hire me. I, you know, I needed a job. I was desperate. We were desperate for cash. And um, But I continued to write, you know. And, again, that's one of those times where, you know, when I was there, uh, I definitely didn't see this moment coming all this success is happening and um it's it's pretty crazy man a lot has happened overnight basically in the past two years Uh, wow i know people don't generally buy cds anymore but would there be any more of a sweet moment to be able to see that to see boom in in that store oh absolutely i've told every i mean dude i'll tell you what i feel sorry for any of my fans who show up at the the walmart that i go to because i guarantee you i will be there (laughs) the minute they open and I'll be there with my kids and we will buy every single copy that's in there. And man, just to, you know, I'll just let, I'll just sit there and look at it, you know, for a minute and take it all in. And that's, that's how every day is uh, for us. It's really hard to explain, but my wife and I, we celebrate all the, even the smallest victories, but I consider that a major um, milestone. You know, we've been here 13 years together and we've, uh, you know, we've done the family thing regardless of how much sense it didn't make, you know, to still be an artist and, and, and to have all these kids. And we will, we, we will be absolutely proud uh, to the core when we walk in and, um, and see that CD sitting, you know, up there on the shelf with a lot of my heroes. Yeah, I, I had a couple of books come out, and the last one last year it was in Barnes & Noble. Yeah. And just seeing it there on the bookshelf is uh, it's, uh, oh, it's yeah. really strange. Man, I can't imagine. Yeah, I can't imagine because because you know, I mean, and I can't imagine writing a book. I mean, I'm sure that that takes way more time than probably an album. But yeah, just all the blood, sweat, and tears you put in, you know, to these ideas you have, and to see them come to fruition like that, it's pretty crazy. And you know, I don't know. Maybe I feel like CDs maybe are going away, and so I think it's kind of nice to slide in there you know, to, to maybe be one of the last, you know, I don't know how, I don't know what's next, but I know it's, it's hard to even find a place nowadays where they sell an, an album. That's very true. Now, what I want to know what artists influence you. I mean, there's obviously some, there's obviously country in your sound, but there's hip hop, yeah. there's R&B rock. Where did this, where did the, the Walker Hayes sound come from? Well, I grew up, I grew up, you know, we were talking earlier, I grew up listening to a lot of hip hop. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was for anywhere from bone thugs and harmony, like a lot of R and B flavored hip hop all the way to Tupac. Um, I was obsessed with him growing up and really, you know, when, when, when I was in high school and at a parking lot or in a field or, or whatever, it was all over the map. Honestly, there wasn't that much, you know, country. My first country album I ever bought was, uh, Tim McGraw and it was the lyrics really that you know that drew me to him it was that it was a particular song called don't take the girl and i remember that being oh one of the, yeah that was one of the first country songs where i went wow this is a, a really interesting turn of phrase it's amazing you know how the writer did this but i listened to it all you know when i picked up the guitar john mayer uh you know room for squares album was was really popular um so i listened to a lot of that but honestly i, I feel like i've always just been attracted to the lyricists, the the songs that really, you know, had content that spoke to me that just kind of turned the world off and made me want to listen a little closer. And, um, you know, I had no idea listening to all that stuff that, that I would eventually be a songwriter, but looking back, I can see why I was attracted to those, 
uh, types of songs. But man, I I never I didn't listen to to music in a box. You know, I, I didn't call it a genre. I just I listened to it all. And um, I definitely loved bass, though. That's something that all my <laughs> friends uh, from back in high school they laughed that that my music has that beat in it because uh, when I grew up, I was always you know trying to see how loud I can make my my blazer thump down the road. <laughs> and uh, you know, my parents were embarrassed. They were always like, "Hey, can you, can you turn that down when you come in the neighborhood?" And I was like, "Dude, louder is better." That's right. Louder. The harder it hits, man. That's that's what I that's what I love about it. Um, so, man, really, just anything, anything and everything. Uh, when I grew up, for sure. I grew up in Ohio. It sounds like we grew up in the same place, though. All right, you yeah. got this. You got this very personal style of writing. And I, shut up, Kenny. I hear that now. You hear the <laughs> song, and you. And I know it's it's an endearing. It's a tribute. Did you have to reach out to him in advance to before you know just to, to let him know that this was a positive? Absolutely. I, I, there was no way uh, I was going to put that song out if he took offense to it in any way, form, or fashion. One being because his music sits uh, parallel with my wife and I's relationship. He was taken off when we started dating in 97. And so, uh, you know, a lot of his songs I identify with awesome or bad, you know, memories of us. And uh, so he's a special guy to me. You know, I'm not, we're not friends by any means, but my producer happens to be great buddies with Kenny and has written several songs that Kenny has cut. And so, yeah, they shot it over to him and uh, just said, hey, you know, Walker's a big fan. You know, this was a song idea he just had to write. Um, you know, we, we wanted on the album, take a listen, just kind of filling him out. And uh, he, he said it was really cool. He loved it. And uh, so that, that we kind of got his blessing, you could say. But man, I you know I would never want to. I don't want to be that guy who who offends anybody. And uh, that's that was really the main reason for running it by him. I just didn't want him to think, oh, this kid is um, you know taking a stab at me. It's not like that at all. Now you got to get him to do a cover of it. That would uh, that, that would be the <laughs> that would be up. awesome. Right? Or, uh, we we thought it'd be funny if he did a spoof like. Uh, like shut up, Walker. You know, it was like <laughs> quit singing songs about me. <laughs> That's um, great. All right, so I, yeah, he he was kind. I want to get into this week's games. Going to put you to the test here a little bit, and you, you know, we know you're an Alabama guy, but we're going to test your your metal here. So we're going to start out in the Pac-12 title game, Stanford USC, a rematch from September 9th. USC won that game, 42 to 24. Cardinal running back Bryce Love looks like he's headed for a spot at the Heisman ceremony. Who's taking this one? Well, I think a lot of this. This one is an example of how I'm going to go for a lot of these rematches. I think so, several of them were such blowouts that I just don't see, you know, teams adjusting and and coming back. So I'm I'm going to say uh, USC takes this one, and uh, I think Donald is not going to throw any interceptions or as many as he has recently. <laughs> and I think uh, Jones is going to take a little pressure off of him and. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, didn't uh, I feel like USC lost um, in a, in a Pac-12 championship a couple of years ago to Stanford? Maybe. Yeah, there you and, go. Uh, so, so this isn't like this means a lot to them. You know, they want to win this one uh, as much as they wanted to beat them in the regular season. So that's what I'm going with there. I like this. You're coming strong. This is a uh, this is impressive stuff. All right, the AAC game is Memphis and UCF in another rematch. Uh, UCF. 
un, undefeated, but Scott Froster, coach, uh, expected to take over at Nebraska. Might be some outside uh, noise there. Who's, uh, does UCF stay undefeated? I think they do, and honestly, it's a, it's a stupid reason, but I, I feel they're they're at home, aren't they? Yeah. For this game. So I, I think, you know, this is one of those interesting games where this, I mean, wouldn't you say this is their biggest game all year? I mean, whatever comes next is cool, you know, wherever wherever, whatever they play uh, during bowl season. And I feel like this matters the most. And, um, again, this is just – this was a blowout uh, when they played earlier. I guess it's been, what, seven games? I don't know, something like that. But I'm going to go with UCF on this one. And, honestly, it's one I know the least about. But I, I feel like UCF's going to take it home. Hey, you win 11 games, you might as well win the 12th one, right? That's how right, they play. exactly. All right, the Big 12 game, another rematch. Oklahoma, TCU, Baker Mayfield, the clear Heisman favorite. Do the Sooners punch the expected ticket to the college football playoff? Now, this is this is a rematch that could get interesting. Um, you know, I don't know how much a defensive end can change a game, but, you know, what's his name, Bozen? He, he uh, I think he's going to not get kicked out this game uh i did a little research on this one and i had forgotten what had happened uh but i think he's gonna stay in this one could get interesting i mean i want you know personally as a bama fan you know i need some i need some losses here between oklahoma and wisconsin so i'm kind of i feel like mayfield's gonna gonna tear it up rodney anderson they're, they're just gonna they they are most likely to win but i wouldn't mind a tcu upset here so you taking Oklahoma? Or you taking TCU? Uh, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna. Stay. I'm gonna take Oklahoma. If All I'm right. betting money, I'm taking Oklahoma. All right. The SEC game, the one that I know you think Alabama should have been in, is now Georgia and Auburn in the last of the rematches. This is the seventh one, by the way, in SEC title history. Carryon Johnson from uh, Auburn expected to play in this one, but the Bulldogs are going to be looking for revenge. Who's going to take this? If if Johnson's healthy, Auburn's got it easy. If he's not, I think it'll be a game, but Auburn's going to take it. Um, Stidham is – he's on fire. Dude is confident right now. You can just tell by looking at him on the sideline. He's he's feeling like he's pretty amazing right now. And uh, I like that. You know, I want I want Auburn – I want Auburn to win. I love Kirby Smart, um, but I don't think um, – I don't think they can handle Auburn this year. All right. The ACC game, Miami and Clemson. The ACC has been waiting on Miami to make it to this game since they joined the conference. It couldn't be much bigger. Well, it could have been a little bit bigger if the Hurricanes didn't fall to pit, but an almost guaranteed spot in the playoffs here. Miami, Clemson, who's getting the win in Charlotte? Uh, this is the only one that's not a rematch, correct? So they, they did not play. You know, I'm going to go with Clemson. Um just watching Miami play Pitt, I didn't think it looked really great. And uh, I think Clemson just has more experience uh, in games like this. Although, when Miami, um, you know, I know they're thinking how they they handled Syracuse right after uh, Syracuse handled Clemson. So, I'm sure they're watching some valuable film, but I'm going to go with Sweeney and the Clemson Tigers. Are we going to see the turnover one. chain? What's that? Are we going to see the turnover chain in this one? I don't know what that is. Oh, you don't. Okay, so Miami, when they get a turnover, they. Oh, you they, mean, I was talking about other you. Yeah, the chain. Yeah, they all, yeah. They always wear it when they get it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. 
I don't I don't know if uh, you know Clemson is such a deep diverse team. I guess nobody's like superstardom this year, but everyone's involved and they're pretty solid. So you may you may that turnover chain might stay in the box. I like that thing though. It's like a you know two live crew fallback thing. You know back it in the day. Cool. It's cool. It's cool. Yeah. What? Uh, Mama's got the belt. Somebody Georgia's got the big like shoulder pads with the spikes on yep. it and stuff. Yeah. There you go. All right, the last one for us, the Big Ten game, Ohio State and Wisconsin. This one, not a rematch, so the Buckeyes have an outside shot at making the playoff. Wisconsin, the last undefeated Power 5 team. How's this one going to play out? Man, uh, I've, I've actually got some buddies who are uh, Wisconsin fans, and they have all been very realistic about you know Wisconsin's schedule this year and how easy it's been. But, man, I think they have a lot to prove. And, uh, you know, I've been watching Ohio State recently. And um, I th- I think Wisconsin's going to beat them. I think Wisconsin's going to upset somebody hardcore. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go with, with uh, Wisconsin on this one. Finally, going to get their respect if they can take this one. That's that's for sure. So- yeah, and so I mean, I don't know what's the status on uh, on Barrett. I mean, is he? Uh, is he okay? Yeah, I, well, I think we're going to find out. They're kind of playing it close to the vest. So, do you have do you have a, a playoff prediction? Do you do you have four teams that you think are going to get in? Uh, I haven't really like written it down. I, if I had to like, <clears throat> you know, pick who it would be, it would either be it would be. Uh, I want. I would love to see obviously two SEC teams in it. So you know, I, I would love Auburn and Bama. Uh, obviously, and then, you know, I don't really care when it comes down to, you know, Clemson and Miami and, um, you know, Ohio State and that and Wisconsin and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I really – I want to see two SEC teams in it, and I want to see Bama obviously voted in, and I want to see that rematch. As long as the Yellowhammer State teams are in there, right? That's all you That's care about. That's what I want to see. It's – man, it's always fun uh, no matter what, and – um so yeah, I just I love all college football. I watch I watch any game, no matter who's playing. Well, there's going to be some good ones this week. And once again, Walker Hayes' new album "Boom" comes out December eighth. You can follow him on Twitter at Walker Hayes or go to WalkerHayes.com for tour dates and more. Walker, thanks so much, man. Wishing you continued success. Corey, thanks for having me. Have a good day, okay? You too, man. We'll be back when we're calls countdown right after this. North Myrtle Beach, where a summer vacation is even better in the fall. Paddle a serene inland waterway. Ride horseback on a warm, wide open beach. It's never too late for a sensational summer vacation. This fall, just coast. For travel deals, visit ExploreNorthMyrtleBeach.com. And for the third quarter here on Kyle's Countdown, presented by North Myrtle Beach, Corey McCartney with you, and it's Helmet Stickers time. Joined by Zach Dillard and John Wilkerson. And guys, this is a, a little bit of a departure for us because typically we have an entire slate of ACC games to go through when we pick our players, both offensively and defensively, or in for big weeks. Now, we could say, hey, Florida State's playing Louisiana Monroe for a spot in a bowl game, so we could go there. But we need to put our focus, just like the rest of the conference is, on what's happening in Charlotte, the ACC title game. John, we're going to put this on you to start things off offensively. Who is going to shine in the Queen City? Well, I'm going with a collective unit. Uh, from Clemson, and I'm going with the running backs, Tavion Feaster, Travis Etienne, 
C.J. Fuller, Adam Choice, and the rest of the uh, Clemson running backs because uh, obviously there's not a featured back there, but as a collective unit, these guys can get it done. Uh, against South Carolina last week, uh, I think they just uh, were short of 300 yards rushing, and neither one of those backs had any more than, I think, 70 yards rushing uh, as an individual. So um, I think if that collective unit does the same thing as they did against South Carolina, I think they're talented enough to do that, then I think it's an easy win for Clemson. I love Travis Etienne, and this is a very Alabama approach. And Wes and I have spent a lot of time talking about this before. Clemson has it's done its own thing with a coach with a different vibe than what they have in Tuscaloosa. But if there's one thing or two things about Clemson that are very Alabama, it's their defensive front and it's the depth that they've had at, at the running back position of late. So uh, a, uh, a a interesting choice there on going into the offensive key. Yeah, I mean I like their running backs as well. I will look at the receiving core and. It is no longer the regular season, right? The regular season right. is over. Right. Uh, yep. We're in the playoffs. Right. So the regular season's done. So throw everything you think you know out about Hunter Renfro and the way that Clemson uses him because now is the time that Hunter Renfro over the past two years has completely broken out. And uh, I called him on our video that we did the other day, Corey, the X-Factor of all X-Factors because he's been the king of X-Factors over the past two seasons. He's averaged in 29 regular season games, 40 yards per game, and he scored five touchdowns. In six postseason games, as Clemson's gone to the national title twice for the past two years during his career, 60 yards per game and six touchdowns for Hunter Renfro. I, you look at the way that I thought the most impressive touchdown I've seen out of him in his career happened in that South Carolina game, uh, the way that he was able to spin out of that, and uh, it looked like the most explosive I've ever seen from Renfro. They have a lot of weapons. They have a uh, quite a few options with their running game. Kelly Bryant with his arm and his legs. Deion Kane and the rest of that receiving core. But it just seems like Hunter Renfro is always that guy that you got to keep an eye on. Uh, I'll go with Renfro in this game, leaking out and finding a touchdown. Who's the better Hunter Renfro, the one that plays for Clemson, <laughs> Clemson. or the, the Padres outfielder who has a you know, had a 0.3 uh, war this last season? Yeah, he he's fine, uh, but it's Clemson's Hunter Renfro at the moment. What's I his mean, war? Can he get separation? Yeah. Yeah, his war in the regular seasons, he's a, he's a replacement level – slot receiver that if you threw a bunch of other guys along with all the talent that Clemson has, he's a pretty much a replacement level receiver. But you get to the postseason and all of a sudden you're talking about, you know, a, a Daniel Murphy or a Ben Zobris that yeah. just completely takes over. So uh Renfro in the postseason, you ha- you have to like what you see. Got a, a one sixty weighted recruit plus in the <laughs> in the postseason yeah. Hunter Renfro. The Clemson Hunter Renfro does. I'm going with Braxton Berrios from Miami and, and Zach, you also mentioned this on one of the videos. Christopher Herndon out for the season, the Miami tight end. Clemson has had an ability over the past few years to give up uh, a lot of touchdowns to the tight end position. Look at Braxton Berrios, and I think, okay, Amon Richards has not lived up to the expectations as he's kind of had to work his way back from injury throughout the season. He's been wildly inconsistent. Travis Homer was absolutely shut down by Pitt. I think Malik Rozier is going to be running for his life in this game. He is a mobile quarterback. We saw, you know, uh, Eric Dungy, Lamar Jackson give this Clemson defense some trouble when you can extend the pocket and make some things happen. Braxton Berrios is so good at 
reacting and finding ways to get open, I think he's going to be the biggest factor uh, for Miami offensively. Can he do much damage? I think that's going to really determine how much success they can have offensively. I don't really see them being able to run the football. Rozier's going to be put in some positions because of the pressure Clemson can create to make some throws, and Braxton Berrios is unequivocally this guy's favorite target. So, John, as we turn things over to the defensive side, well, I'm going to go uh, defense slash special teams with Miami, and I'm going to go with Braxton Berrios, their punt returner. There you go. Uh, you went with him with, with the offense. And Jeff day. Thomas, who primarily returns kicks. Because I think uh, if Miami's going to win this, and I thought you brought up some good points about uh, Malik Rozier, but they're going to need to put that offense in good field position, and it's going to be imperative on them to get at least – past the 20, maybe to the 30, and get him in favorable field position for Rozier to be able to do what he, what you just mentioned and, and for Travis Homer to feel comfortable and be that running back that he has to be if Miami's going to be comfortable. So I think a lot of pressure is going to be put on those two guys in special teams to get, put the Miami offense in position, uh, field position-wise, to be able to strike the early and quickly. Yeah, I think field position is an interesting uh, way to approach this for Miami because I do think they are overmatched. I don't think their offense is on par with Clemson. I think Clemson's defense is still the strength of that team and it is better than Miami. Um, so field position will play a, a major role with special teams as well as uh, the way that Miami's been able to create turnovers and they will need to do that in this game. I don't think Miami is going to be able to leave this game without forcing a single turnover and thinking they're going to you know, trade haymakers with Clemson. I don't think that this Miami team is built that way. And one of the one of the things that jumps out to me about Miami, seventeen interceptions this season, but one of the one of the main causes of that is they are able to create pressure on opposing quarterbacks almost as as well as Clemson has this year. Clemson has ninety eight tackles for loss this season. Uh, if they are able to run the table, get to the national title game, continue at this pace, it could be the fifth straight season that Brent Venables defense finishes number one in the country at creating negative plays. Now Miami's had ninety five tackles for loss. This season, R.J. McIntosh, Trent Harris, Joe Jackson, you go down the list, they have a pretty good front seven. I should say a very good front seven with a young linebacking core. Keep an eye on R.J. McIntosh. He's been their uh, pretty much their best pass rusher, gets into opposing backfields. And one of the reasons they are able to create so many turnovers is that they can pressure the likes of Kelly Bryant. They have the athleticism to keep up with him. So keep an eye on McIntosh. I do like Clemson in this game. But along with special teams, turnovers, Miami's going to have to capitalize on those situations because if it's just a straight-up matchup, uh, I think Clemson has a pretty pretty heavy edge. The last six games, Miami has averaged three turnovers per game. The only one that they didn't, of course, was that loss to Pitt. If they're able to force turnovers, get points off turnovers, what offense do we feel is even – are either of these offenses built for comebacks? Because it, it doesn't necessarily feel like either of them – Either of them is. I mean, Clemson has the big play ability with guys like Deion Kane and 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 ATN guys that can can make some things happen. But it doesn't really feel like either of these teams that the game gets seemingly gets out of hand. And Miami is able to to do what they did against the likes of Virginia Tech and uh, Notre Dame and and make some get some points off turnovers. That to me is where Clemson could be in the biggest trouble because I just don't feel like they're they're made to do that. Well, when you look at that pit game with Miami, I mean, yeah, Miami's offense completely looked lost. Yeah, they look they looked like they didn't have an answer. Pitt not only made them one dimensional, they made them no dimensional. They they simply went out on the field and they were just going through three and outs and they were trying to come back. 
and they didn't have an answer. You mentioned Amon Richards. I thought that he was the most talented receiver entering this season. He's been up and down. Maybe if he shows up, you're looking at a big play threat for Miami that gives them some semblance of explosiveness. And another thing with Miami, we brought this up yesterday on the video as well, just because they get into the red zone, they score at a really high rate when they get into the red zone, they settle for, for field goals a lot. And I think Miami, if they are going to be perfect in this game and take down Clemson, they cannot do that. They cannot get into the red zone and simply kick field goals because I do think Clemson is uh, the more explosive offense. I don't know which one is built for a comeback, but Miami just settling on f- for touchdowns and 73rd nationally in touchdown percentage in the red zone. So they need to find ways to be not be perfect in this game because I think Clemson's beatable, but uh, they, they have a few things that they're going to have to address. And I would say Clemson's better built for a a comeback simply because I've seen well, the, Miami trail. And- well, the one body of work I can think of with Clemson and a comeback was a Syracuse game, but it's a little unfair because Kelly Bryant was already yeah, hurt yeah. going in that game right. and yep. then ended up uh, leaving the game. So that's that's the one body of work I can think of that can recall where Clemson was put in that position. Uh, Clemson is so good at uh, punching teams in the mouth at the beginning and making them play catch up. And uh, so I, I don't know what Clemson offense will see if Miami is successful in the field position and getting a few quick scores, whether off turnovers or in field position. That's going to be the uh, the X factor for me about Clemson. If they get behind by a couple of touchdowns or even 10 nothing, uh, do they have the poise to come back? Now, this is a team that's been in big-time atmospheres. There's veterans on that team that know, yeah. has been, in the, been there, done that. Uh, Miami hasn't. Uh, that's another thing factor too. I'm looking at too. But I, I would like to see if Clemson gets gets in that position, how they react. The blueprints but, Notre Dame, though, right for Miami. Yes. Way that, I mean, yes. That was their by far their best game. Yes. Forced turnovers, punched them in the mouth immediately. Uh, forced Notre Dame into be more one dimensional. Notre Dame had that great and running game, putting that Notre Dame offense in disarray. Right. I mean, and that you, was quintessential that what you Miami. Would think, right Corey, now. Is, like that's the blueprint, right? Is to jump out ahead, and then completely take away their run game and force Bryant to make plays all day. I I would agree with that. But the the thing I think about with Miami, though, is they've played so many more games. Obviously, they had the the epic comebacks uh, early in the season. And you look at Clemson, and they've played three games that were decided by 14 points or uh, decided by less than 14 points when they beat uh, Auburn 14 to 6 obviously when they lost to Syracuse 27 to 24 and then when they beat NC State 28 to 21 we haven't necessarily seen them in a situation where they have to put something together in order to win a football game. That was we, a very different Auburn team, too. No, yes. It was. I was no say it was. And, and definitely not the team that and, beat and we, But we've seen Miami do that, right? So I think that's the one thing that they can at least tie to is if, we, if it gets close and it gets late, we're a, a team that's actually been able to thrive in that situation, and, Cle- and Clemson hasn't necessarily been asked to do that. The NC State game is the only example. Yeah. Because th- those two teams traded some haymakers yep. in that game. They went right. back and forth, and Clemson kept, kept them at a – Kept them at arm's length, and that was the only time, to your point, that we've seen Clemson do that. I would say against an NC State team that maybe wasn't quite as good as their ranking. But again, for in Clemson's favor is the fact that they've been in these big playoff games before, and there are veterans on that team that know how to handle this. So to me, that's a huge plus uh, when you have that opportunity in Miami. This is their first time in, in this kind of atmosphere. Great coaching matchup too. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I'm, I, well, I mean, you go back to that NC State game. It was 38-28 until a minute 51 when, when NC State hit a field goal. So uh, that doesn't happen, and we're talking about another 
you know, one that's that's decided by you know two possessions or, right. or, mm-hmm. or more, which is obviously where yeah, they Clemson were, spent most. Uh, of the NC State was competitive so. in that game, but yeah, it yeah, meant that arms length, yeah. yeah, and at least showed you something from Clemson that even when a team is, you know, Ryan Finley looked really, he looked great that yeah, Kelvin Harmon, awesome. that yeah. that NC State team was clicking that day, but they were able to hold them wow. off. I think that's the only time that was their Super Bowl that. too. And I haven't even gotten to my defensive pick for the oh, game, but well, I, I would do it. I, I do want to say though that. I feel like what's funny is is Mark Richt has grown so much as a as a coach in, in what he's allowing offensively since coming to Miami. I think he's got a quarterback in Malik Rozier that you never would have imagined him having when he was in Georgia. Right. But it almost feels like if he had the quarterbacks that he had when he was in Georgia, he would be much more equipped to beat Clemson. That that's that would seemingly in this offense to have a guy with a little bit more pocket poise would seem to be a little bit more of a of an think about Ryan Finley what he was able to do yeah. against Clemson if he had I mean obviously if he had Ryan Finley this offense would be would probably be better but if he had a more established pocket presence like he always had when he was in Athens maybe a little bit more equipped to uh, to, to take Clemson down but let's let's just put Aaron Murray on <laughs> Malik Rose we'll put him in yeah. Miami just just call him up. There you go. There you go. DJ Shockley, I DJ think, Shockley. is available. He's available. David Green had yeah. the pocket presence. Just bring some of the None of them are doing anything out. right now, so yeah. I'm sure we could find I think they've got a game of eligibility left, too. They probably do, yeah. <laughs> All right, so my pick is Tanner Muse, the Clemson safety. 58 tackles, four pass breakups in the season. Clemson, I, I, I mentioned before, you know, they, they've had issues with guys who can stretch the pocket. Lamar Jackson, Eric Dungy. These guys who can scramble. If I'm taking Braxton Berrios because I think he's going to be in a position to do something— I'm taking the guy who's probably going to have to be one of the guys chasing Braxton Berrios around, who's going to have to step up and help shut him down when Christian Wilkins and company are chasing Malik Rozier all over the place because I don't think Travis Homer is going to get much done on the ground just like he didn't against Pitt. So I think this is an opportunity for Muse to either get an interception or be able to dictate what happens uh, when Rozier's on the run when he's trying to make something happen with his arm. Yeah, we had uh, Don Munson, the voice of the Clemson Tigers on ACCO Access. He brought up the same point about the, the Clemson secondary and how uh, unappreciated, I guess, is the best word to describe yeah. it because everybody talks about the front four yeah, yeah. and the linebacking core. And uh, that uh, secondary has really held up its own and then some. Um, so I guess unappreciated would be the best way to, to talk about that group. It's a secondary that lost so much pro talent yeah. over yeah. the past few years. They they seem to be hemorrhaging pro talent, but they've recruited so well. Clemson's only allowed 14 passing touchdowns this season, despite the fact that most teams were playing from behind. Well, there's a reason why you can be second among all Power 5 teams with 40 sacks. It's because you have a secondary that's so good that you can be a little bit more mm-hmm. aggressive in your in your looks up front and be able to – Put more pressure on the quarterback. Bring the extra worried. man. Yeah, you're not worried about having a breakdown on the back end uh, of things, which is, uh, you know, that's why Brent Venables is the man. I mean, quietly it's, uh, effective group. He is yep, the man. Yep. Best DC in college football. He'll be on. He'll be on display once again, and he'll be watching that pit game. He he has a way of picking up your flaws by watching what you've done before. He'll, I think he'll be ready. I like Clemson in this one. I, I agree with you, John. Do you want to make a quick uh, pick? Clemson. Put paws across yeah. the board. Yep, there you go, all three of us. All right, John, Zach, appreciate it, guys. We'll take a break here on College Countdown. When we come back, going to set up the final weekend of play before we have to turn in Heisman votes. North Myrtle Beach, where a summer vacation is even better in the fall. Warm days, wide open beaches, electric nights, thrilling entertainment. It's never too late for a spectacular summer vacation. This fall, just coast. For travel deals, visit ExploreNorthMyrtleBeach.com. 
And for the final quarter here on College Countdown, presented by North Myrtle Beach, Corey McCartney with you. And this is your Heisman forecast heading into championship weekend. Now, Heisman ballots just hit voters' inboxes this week, a change in timing that isn't getting nearly enough attention. This will mark the first time that the three-week period has been cut down to one week, which squarely and rightfully puts the focus on championship weekend before votes are due at 5 p.m. Eastern on Monday, December 4th. Now, Archie Griffin, the award's only two-time recipient, told me during an interview that he always casts his ballots before the title games, and his stance is that he votes when every player has played the same amount of games. But it also discounts the season's of those players whose impact has put their teams in a position to play for a conference championship, those performances should still be considered part of those contenders' Heisman narratives. A year ago, 16% of the votes were turned in before the last weekend, with eventual winner Lamar Jackson, who did not play in a title game, receiving 45% of the vote. The year before that, 157 ballots were in before the final games. That was ahead of runner-up Christian McCaffrey breaking Barry Sanders' single-season all-purpose yardage record in the Pac-12 title game. There will still be those like Griffin who immediately vote, and it's a fair stance, one that's shortened uh, time period affords him still. But with Auburn's on Johnson, Oklahoma's Baker Mayfield, Stanford's Bryce Love, and Wisconsin's Jonathan Taylor, all among the top contenders and all playing this weekend, the spotlight is and should be on them heading into the games that will ultimately shape the college football playoff field. It's with that in mind that heading into the final days before the votes are due that we forego the normal on-the-rise-and-fall-guys approach for the forecasters' weekly breakdown and instead rank the candidates by who has the most to gain among those taking the field on championship weekend. As a primer, here's how the race projects as we enter the final weekend, the first weekend of December. Baker Mayfield, number one. Bryce Love, number two. Lamar Jackson, the defending winner, have him number three going into championship weekend. So let's start off with Kerryon Johnson, who has the most to gain this weekend. As detailed numerous times over the years, it's increasingly difficult to miss a single game and win a trophy, something that has happened just three times since 1957, let alone sitting out twice as Johnson did. He was out versus Clemson, one of the Tigers' two losses, and then was out the following week against Mercer. Despite that, only Kentucky's Benny Snell has more yardage among SEC runners than Johnson's 1,276 yards. Snell just 42 more yards than Johnson has. His a trajectory somewhat similar to Auburn's last finalist, Trey Mason, who entered October with pedestrian numbers a few years ago, 338 yards to Johnson's 300. And while Mason used a run to the 2013 BCS title game to get to New York, Johnson is a dominant game versus Georgia in the SEC final from punching his own trip to the ceremony. He's nursing a shoulder injury, should be noted. Auburn coach Gus Malzahn has been noncommittal, and obviously if Johnson can't go, he's not getting an invite, regardless if the Tigers win. But should he follow up his, his November 11th stat line against the Bulldogs when he had 233 yards and a score, Johnson can sneak into the finalist field. Next up, Jonathan Taylor from Wisconsin. Just as the Badgers have an opportunity to validate their season against Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship game, Taylor can do the same and strengthen a resume that includes 1,806 yards as his third in FBS. The Buckeyes' 13th-ranked rush defense, giving up 112.8 yards per game and has allowed just one running back, Iowa's Akron Wadley, to break the century mark when he had 118 in the Hawkeyes' 55-24 win. On November, on November 4th, over the last four games, Taylor is piling up 155 yards per game. No Power 5 player has more 200-yard games than his. But the Badgers last came October 14th against Purdue. Doing that against this Ohio State defense will be stunning. He's 194 yards from getting to 2,000, and that number 
will be an intriguing one because in the college football playoff era, we have yet to see a back hit that plateau and have his team in the Final Four. Next up, Baker Mayfield from Oklahoma. The reality is the trophy is going to wind up in Norman. All Mayfield needs to do is have a typical Mayfield kind of day. He's averaging 341.4 yards and three TD passes per game. And he has to avoid any further controversy Saturday night in Arlington, Texas, and this will basically be akin to a victory lap. Should he have another moment, a la the Ohio State flag plant, the trash talk against Baylor and Kansas, that leads to another apology, we could give voters something to ponder. But the fact is, there's no one in prime position to take the lead. Louisville's Lamar Jackson seems like a lock to return to the ceremony, but he's not playing. And Johnson, Taylor, and the rest of these contenders can only make up so much ground. Mayfield is down on this list because barring an implosion against TCU, there's just simply no room for him uh, to, to, to fall in the big, uh, should he lose the Big 12 final in terms of the trophy race. Final guy for the week that has the most to gain, Bryce Love. Now, the nation's leader in rushing yards among Power 5 players at 1,848 yards. By the way, he's less than a yard behind San Diego State's Rashard Penny for the yards per game lead at 168.0. Love's place in this race is likely set. He has a legit shot at getting to the 2,000-yard mark in the Pac-12 title game. USC is allowing 158.9 yards per game. He already has 160 against the Trojans earlier this year. You know, plus a win would put the Cardinal in the Cotton Fiesta or Peach Bowl. But Love has long penciled himself in as a finalist. Uh, I just don't think there's that all that much to gain for him uh, against the Trojans this weekend. I firmly expect him to be Stanford's sixth runner-up in the Heisman voting since Jim Pluckett's win in 1970. And that is likely not to change, even if he has a monster game against the Trojans. That'll do it for this edition of College Countdown. I'd like to thank Walker Hayes for coming on and make his picks. Uh, next week, we'll be back to do it all over again as we dive in to the college football playoff field and the bowl games that await the ACC. So thanks for tuning in. Appreciate it. And as always, remember, if life gives you fourth and short, go for it.